Good morning. Good morning. It's very good to see you all. Um, I'll open with a word of prayer. Father, I pray that we can have humility. I pray that we can have our eyes and our hearts fixed on you. That we won't seek for our own glory, that we won't seek for our own desires, but that we will seek with every breath to honour the Lord our God. I pray that we can remember who Christ is today, that we can remember through every day what you have done for us, and let that be the motivating force in our lives. Your love. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so, in preparing for today's lesson, I did a little bit of research into how you give a lesson, how you give a lecture or something of that sort. And the first piece of advice that was given was know your audience. And it got me thinking because obviously every single one of us can be defined differently across different dimensions. I could be a man, I could be in my mid-twenties, I could be a Christian. And you could define me and talk to me on those different levels. I want to talk to you guys today as Christians. If you're not a Christian, you will get, I hope, you will get plenty from this lesson. But today is about affirming the faith of Christians in the room. It's about calling you to remember certain things and to really make the resurrection particularly of Jesus Christ the foundation of your life. Because it all hinges on the resurrection. In order to do that, we're looking at Peter. And we're going to follow him as an example of how the, re the resurrection can change somebody. Um, so, could I please have the next slide? So that's what we're going to be looking at. Human concerns versus faith. Human concerns versus faith. Next slide, please. So Matthew 16, 21 to 23. Matthew 16, 21 to 23. So, at the top here, I just want to point out that we will be going through a few scriptures, one after the other, in fairly quick succession, and then we'll talk about them. Because what I want to do is I want to try and highlight a pattern of behavior in Peter. Okay, so, um, starting in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day, and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Okay? Bear that phrase in mind, human concerns. Okay, so could I have the next slide, please? John 18, 10 to 11. John 18, 10 to 11. <clears throat> Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So we see here again, Peter is acting in a way that is, there's a disconnection between what God's will is and what Peter's doing. 
that Peter's heart, Peter's motivation, his intention and his, his desired outcome is different from the desired outcome of God. Uh, next slide, please. Matthew 26, 69 to 75. <clears throat> Peter disowns Jesus. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You were also with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Uh, your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. For anyone unfamiliar with this passage, this takes place after Jesus has been arrested. He is being brought to the court to be tried for blas uh, blasphemy. And Peter is following along behind Jesus, keeping an eye on him. But anytime someone asks him, do you know Jesus? He flat out says no, because, well, why? That's the key point. Why? Why would Peter deny that he knows Jesus? Exactly. Because he would get killed. In other words, he was scared. And I think every single example of Peter's sin that we've so far looked at can be attributed to his fear. He was very scared. He was scared when Jesus said, I'm going to go and die. So he rebuked him. And he was scared when Jesus was arrested, so he pulled out a sword and cut a man's ear off. And then when he was following Jesus, he was scared. When people asked him if he knew Jesus, because he knew if he said yes, something bad would happen to him. Okay, next slide, please. This is the final passage of scripture we're going to look at for this first section. This takes place after Jesus has died on the cross, risen from the dead, ascended to heaven. Peter is an apostle at this point. He's been going around preaching the word. He's been going around performing miracles. Okay. Um, so Galatians 2, 11 to 14. When Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is a, another name for Peter, by the way. So when he says Cephas, he's referring to the apostle Peter. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. This is Paul speaking. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. Some translations have that as his cowardice. So by, uh, by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow, follow Jewish customs? So yes, Peter is an apostle at this point, but I think every single Christian in the room can attest that just because you become a Christian doesn't mean you stop sinning, doesn't mean you become perfect. But again, Peter fell prey to the same sin issue. He was afraid because he was thinking 
not according to the gospel, not according to Christ, but according to his human concerns, his human reasoning, his human fear, okay? I think it is so easy to fall into a pattern of worrying about things, not human things, but from a human perspective. We can think about work, or we can think about if we are perhaps having a conviction on our hearts that we should go and evangelize, um, we might not because we're anxious about who we might encounter or what might happen to us. That's human thinking. That's not faithful thinking. It's not. If you're living in fear, doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Doesn't mean fear goes away when you become a Christian. But fear and faith are kind of in opposition to each other. So that if you're going to say you're living in faith, what you're really doing in a lot of instances is defying your fear. If you're letting your fear get the better of you, that's an indication that your faith wasn't where it should have been in that moment. We're all going to stumble. We're all going to falter, of course. But we need to recognize the cause of that in a lot of instances. A lot of it is that we forget the truth of Jesus Christ. We forget that he did die on a cross and then rise from the dead after three days. We can overlook that fact sometimes. Or we can struggle to believe it. I'm from an atheistic background. I I became a Christian after I saw the Old Testament prophecies. And at that point, you know, reading Psalm 22 and seeing how clearly it was describing the the, uh, crucifixion, I, I realized this book, this is the inspired word of God. How, how could such a thing be prophesied? Unless it was by God. It's easy though to lose sight of those convictions and those principles because fear, you can intellectualize your faith. You can know everything, bullet points, the facts. But sometimes when you're afraid, what's reasonable suddenly doesn't seem reasonable. Your thinking becomes warped almost. And so things that on a good day seem plainly true, on a bad day, you can have all sorts of doubts about them. Right? And so there are times, I'm sure, when Peter was following Jesus during Jesus' lifetime. And was seeing him do these incredible things, performing these amazing miracles, and was convinced in his heart of hearts, this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. And yet, when things got a bit too much for him, that conviction dissipated. And I think that we live in a very, very, very privileged place and time. We are extremely fortunate. In terms of even wealth, the poorest among us still exist in sort of the top 1% wealthiest people to have ever existed throughout all human history. We have police that can keep us safe, generally speaking. We have religious liberty in this country. We're not going to get thrown in prison unless we're, (laughs) unless we perhaps go a bit too far for proclaiming the gospel. It's not going to happen. We don't have the threat of death looming over our heads 
because we're Christians in this country. We don't. But there are people in the world who do. And they defy that threat and that fear. And I think my concern is, Scripture talks about the fact that faith is more precious than gold, and even gold has to be put through a fire in order to be um, perfected. And I think it's very easy for us here today to avoid the fire. And the concern that leaves me with is, it might be fine and dandy for today, but there will come a time, likely in your life as a Christian, when the fire is going to get very, very hot and you're not going to have an option to run away from it without rejecting your faith. And so we have to ensure that in the good times and the bad times, we're cultivating a mature faith. You know, like, don't think of this as peacetime. This isn't peacetime. This is, this is a temporary reprieve from a war that will come. You know, you need to prepare yourselves for the spiritual challenges that face, that you face. Because you do face them, whether you realize it today or not. And I'm sure many of you are going through things. Um, things that I can't even imagine. I'm not suggesting for a second that your life is easy. Okay, but I'm suggesting that sometimes life is easier than we realize. And, um, and we need to, yeah, we need to take advantage of that. Be grateful, of course, but take advantage of that, you know? We, today, have the ability to read. Pretty much everyone in this room, I would imagine, can read to one level or another. That's quite a new thing in the history of humankind, you know? There are people who would have given their right arm to own a copy of the Bible because they just couldn't own one. You know, the printing press wasn't a thing. We have all of the tools available to us to live extremely rich lives as Christians, faithful lives, lives of spiritual maturity. And I think sometimes the great curse of abundance is that you can become complacent because you don't realize that it could be gone tomorrow. Next slide, please. So that's what we're going to look at now, the power of the resurrection, right? Because I think it's all well and good talking about spiritual maturity and how we should be taught um, to the fullest that we can be, but not everyone is going to be gifted in, in, in understanding the very deepest doctrines of the faith and all of these things, right? But there, there are some key points, some key areas where if you have a solid conviction, you don't need anything else. And the resurrection is the fundamental one. Okay, next slide, please. So Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. And this is where we're going to tie. It can happen to anyone at any time. Don't forget that. Um, yeah, Hebrews 2, 14 to 15, right? Now remember this concept that we've established of Peter's fear and our own fear as Christians. What's the remedy according to scripture for that fear? Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. There's some profound stuff in that, which, yeah, there's some profound stuff in that, which unfortunately we don't have time to go into today. But So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those, this is the key part, free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The Bible teaches that the fear of death enslaves us to our sin. 
Because I can say I'm a faithful person, but if I have death knocking on my door, if I have death knocking on my door, it, it suddenly becomes a lot harder for me to walk in righteousness. Fear really does, unless you have a solution to the problem of death, fear really can separate you from God because of what it drives you to do. Next slide, please. This is the final scripture we're going to look at today. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Christians, how many of you would die for that claim that Jesus came back from the dead? Do you really believe that? I mean, really believe it. Not just say it. Does it influence how you live? Do you recognize that you have no need to fear death as a Christian? No need. Any pain, any suffering that comes your way as a Christian is temporary. Every tear will be wiped away. It's only for a time, it's only for a season, and then you have eternal glory to look forward to. And how do we know this? What's the evidence of this? Testimony that God gave us to that truth. It's not just that Jesus died for us. We know how that story ends. We know that the crucifixion ends with the resurrection. Imagine if you'd been following Jesus and he died and you didn't know he was going to come back. The crucifixion would look very different. It all hinges on the resurrection. If you don't have a firm conviction in the resurrection, you don't have a firm conviction at all. You need to believe in the resurrection. Paul says it there, if Christ isn't raised, if Christ didn't come back from the dead, our faith means nothing. In another passage he says, we above all people should be pitied if Jesus didn't come back from the dead. Why? Because it means our belief is ridiculous. It's absurd to be a Christian if you don't believe that Jesus came back from the dead. It's absurd. So there's a few things that I want to kind of run through with you guys. Because when I was looking into this, um, I, find, I found these things extremely faith-affirming for the resurrection. There's a couple of great books I recommend. Um, the Case of the Resurrection. Uh, I can't remember the author. But it's the only um, book with that title, so the right one will come up. I think it's Gary Habermas, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a great book. Um, but what I'm going to do now is I'm just going to run down a few key facts. That's a key word, facts, about the resurrection. First thing, the Gospels. We can think of the Gospels as somehow mythologized. They're written in religious language. and That's how we read it, because that's how it's become over time. They're written in the style of first century historical accounts. You can read them and see them basically as a biography. That's how biographies were written in that era. So the Gospels are four uh, eyewitnesses. Well, two eyewitnesses and two people who were writing um, in relationship with eyewitnesses. Who all said, this is what we saw. This is what we lived. This is what happened. Do with it what you will. They're just remembering the facts as they experienced them. That's the first thing. The Gospels are legitimate historical evidence. Don't let 
anyone tell you that the Gospels don't factor into the evidence of Jesus' resurrection and that the Bible, I think we can get into this mentality that if you're talking to someone who doesn't believe in the Bible, you can't use the Bible as evidence. The Bible is first and foremost a historical document, records of what happened in history. Don't be ashamed to use the Bible. Next thing. For a long time in mainstream scholarship, the resurrection, the empty tomb, is kind of laughable. Um, because they were working on assumptions that, well, of course a man couldn't come back from the dead. That's shifted over time. Because the evidence now, speaking generally, right, no mainstream historian um, will dispute a number of facts. The general consensus in scholarship right now is that Jesus was a real person. He really claimed to be the son of God. He really died because of that claim on a cross. Three days after his death, his tomb was really found empty. Think about that. When I'm, the, the people I'm talking about, these aren't Christians saying this. These are agnostic, atheistic, skeptical historians from other faith backgrounds as well. The tomb was really found empty after three days. And after the tomb was found empty, the apostles of Jesus began going around telling people that they had seen him risen from the dead. And every single one of them, with the exception of John, died for that claim. Peter, the guy we've been looking at, who kept running away in fear, denying that he knew Jesus, he died for that belief, that Jesus had really risen from the dead. Can I have the next slide, please? So that's the final thing I really want to talk to you about, is Peter's martyrdom. Peter, um, according to tradition, though it's notable, the Bible does explicitly say Jesus wasn't, um, not Jesus, Jesus too, um, that Peter was martyred, then John said that explicitly. The tradition goes, Peter, during the persecution in Rome by Emperor Nero, was martyred. And the way he was martyred was by crucifixion. Standard stuff at the time. On the way to the crucifixion, he says, I am not worthy, this same coward we saw, I am not worthy to die the way Jesus died, turn my cross upside down. So he was crucified with his head towards the ground. What changed him? There's only one defining quality for his change, which is that he was a sinner, was a coward, and then he saw the risen Christ. And he changed. Doesn't mean he was perfect. We've already seen that he wasn't perfect. But it meant that when push came to shove, he would rather die than deny that he had seen Jesus risen from the dead. Christians, do you have that same conviction in the resurrection? Do you really believe it? You know, when times get tough, you can have all the answers in the world from scripture and how, how do I answer this apologetic and this apologetic. The resurrection, generally speaking, answers all of them. If you really want to break it down, someone can come to me and say, well, how do I know that the Bible is true? Well, Jesus said it was true. And how do I know that Jesus is in authority? Because he came back from the dead. You know, I don't really need many answers beyond that. 
Because the one thing nobody else, no atheist, no agnostic, no other religion can provide is that testimony. I don't need to understand how and why God did everything. All I need to know is that he, he killed his son on a cross for our sins and then rose him from the dead as a testimony that he really is the son of God. That's enough. That's enough. I'm now going to uh, ask my lovely wife, Jasmine, to come up and share. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm going to do a quick kind of testimony kind of thing kind of, to kind of show you how amazing God is. I think, so I grew up as a kingdom kid. I grew up um, being taught what I believed was the Bible and being taught this is the way to read the Bible and this is what it means. And I just accepted it because I was like, okay, sure. Yeah, I'm, I don't have any questions. This is the Bible. This is what it says. Cool. Um, and I used to get a lot of recognition for my knowledge of the Bible. And I used to be like, cool, I know the Bible. People think it's really cool that I know the Bible. Um, leaders think it's really cool that I know the Bible. My Kingdom Kid leaders are, are telling everyone how cool it is that I know the Bible. Um, yeah, I can say all the books of the Bible in order. I know, I know my stuff. I'm, I'm good. But even though I had all of that knowledge, even though I was commended so often <coughs> for my knowledge, I didn't feel like I actually knew what I was saying. Um, often I felt like this is the only way I can be told that I'm good enough. That if I get this recognition, then that means I'm good. That means I'm actually a cool knowledgeable person and that's what I can get my security on that's where I can be told that I'm enough um, however I had that pressure to feel like I needed to be perfect in my knowledge of God that I actually missed the whole point I became super knowledgeable but not knowing anything um, spiritually apt but spiritually dead I realized how much like Peter I put human concerns over God I wanted to be commended for my knowledge, but I didn't want to actually know what I was learning. I didn't feel the need to actually truly understand what it meant that Jesus died and came back for my sin. I, I could tell you from yay high height that I, yes, Jesus died for my sins. And yes, he is, he is God. He is God reincarnated his flesh. And I struggled a lot with my studies of the Bible. I started when I was 12 and didn't get baptized until I was 18. Um, and thank God that happened. Um, somehow people recognized despite my head knowledge, it wasn't really going in. But when I was baptized, I, which I still to this day am so grateful for, and it's a miracle that I was baptized. I recognized how much I was naive in my understanding of what it meant to be faithful. I had faith through the lens of me. I read Jesus through my, my lens. To me, when I read scripture that talked about protection, that talked about what it meant to be protected by God and saved as his child, I was like, cool, that means nothing bad is ever going to happen to me. That because God says, oh, yeah, you're, you're going to be protected, you're going to be saved, I meant that, I read that as a physical thing. I read that as a thing of, cool, nothing's going to happen. I'm going to be good. However, that's not what happened. And I realized very quickly after my baptism, life 
does not go the way you want it to go. Life is hard and has many, many challenges. Um, I kind of joke to people that since my baptism, it's been a non-stop chapter of more pain in my life. Um, but I, I recognize now how much, in a weird way, that's a blessing because it's God allowing me to grow, though it's not a fun process in growing. Um, and I recognize now how much I made decisions that were faithful, but in reality were made fearfully. Um, I had an amazing blessing of marrying my husband last October, and that's been incredible. But it's also been a big wake-up call for me because I realized how much marrying someone who didn't grow up as a kingdom kid, who didn't grow up being told the same things I was told, challenges my view of God. Um, I realized quite painfully that I actually truly didn't understand a lot of even the most basic concepts of faith, of baptism, of what it means to even be condemned, um, which caused me in my fear to run away from God, to pull back from him, to seem like I was doing the right thing, stepping right back into the shoes of when I was a kid, of seeing like I was doing well, but in reality was running. Um, I was fearful that I suddenly realized I actually didn't know this God that I was following. That yes, I claimed to be a Christian, and yes, I claimed to do things for God, in reality, I didn't know who he was in the way that I needed to. Um, however, this is not just an admission of my faithlessness. Um, this is actually a cool hire because I know many people have grown up hearing the same scriptures again and again and again. But it's an encouragement that even I, who in all intents and purposes was a Pharisee, was blind to my own ideas of who God was, that I couldn't see what was really there, that God never gives up. And I'd like to quickly read Psalm 23, 4, which says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I shall not feel evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And I think, and I thank God that even though I've been blind, even though I've been walking in darkness, claiming to have light, that God doesn't leave us. And I think even where you, no matter where you're at in your lives, God is not far from you. And if you don't understand things, if you don't have all the answers or you have many questions, you're not alone in your lack of understanding. And God understands that. I think he's always calling us higher. And it's easy to think that once you've been baptized, once you've ticked all the boxes, you're good. You understand everything. You're, you're God's child. And yes, that is true. But it's also encouragement that faith does not stop once you are a disciple. It keeps growing, it keeps challenging you, and it causes you to acknowledge your weaknesses so that they can become strengths. And even looking at Peter's life, you can see how he went from a man who quite literally ran away from God, quite literally had to have the cockerel crow three times for him to acknowledge his separation from God, to being martyred on the cross. That is possible for us. I'm not saying that we all have to die by being crucified upside down to acknowledge our, our devotion to God. But I can encourage you that even the most faithless moments of your life can turn into something faithful. And that God can use even you at your most faithlessness, faithful place, to create a new creation in you. And I just want to thank God for 
this opportunity. And yeah, that's everything. <laughs> Almighty God, thank you for today, Lord. Thank you that we can come before you as new creations, God, that we can come before you even though we are sinful, even though we mess up constantly and are in constant need of your forgiveness, God, that you still accept us and pursue us. And God, I just want to pray for those right now who are in a faithless situation, God, who feel fearful and don't feel accepted, God. It's it's something I feel very familiar with, God, and just not feeling like I know enough, God, to even call, to be called a disciple, God. But I thank you so much for your grace, God, and your acceptance of where we are at, God. And Lord, I pray that you can soften hearts in areas that need to be softened, God, that you can build people up where they need to be built up, God, and that ultimately that we serve you no matter what happens, God, and that you are the focus. Um, I want to thank you so much just for today and the lesson. Um, I pray for communion. I pray that we can really just connect to you during this time. I pray this all in your name. Amen. Thank you.